0: hello and welcome back to our sabbath school from home podcast where this quarter we're going back to school and sharing various themes each week that relate to the sabbath school pamphlet that arise from various um, experiences interests and areas of expertise that we might have this week's topic is redemption in education and it ties together two really interesting themes how redemption and atonement works, which is a little bit of an abstract theological idea for us. And then how this process works in schools. We're joined this evening by a special guest, Clinton Jackson, who is a school teacher in one of our Adventist schools and a great friend of mine from way back. So I'm Lachlan and I'm joining from Sydney. Uh, G'day, I'm Ken, uh,
1: joining from Launceston.
2: And this is Luke from Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Clinton and I'm joining from Brisbane.
1: Welcome, Clinton, and I'm Cameron, joining from Launceston Also, uh, I may not make it to the end of this recording. I've I've had a um, one of those weeks, so we'll we'll see how I go. If if my voice disappears halfway through the episode, you'll know I've I've gone to get some sleep. <laughs> Feel free to do so. Well,
0: redemption and education are tied together in lots of modern school systems by a a theme of restorative justice or redemptive justice and this idea crossed my radar first a number of years ago when i was a phd student living in canberra and i went to a public lecture by professor john braithwaite who is now a a retired professor emeritus but he was a member of the center for international governance and justice at the anu and is now part of the center for restorative justice and restorative justice was the theme of his public lecture and partly focusing on the rollout as a sort of trial phase that was happening at that time in in the mid-2000s in the Australian Capital Territory. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind for a few reasons. The first was the amount of data that he could quote in support of it being more effective. It also blew my mind a little bit because he kept switching from the the term restorative justice to the term redemptive justice, which, to my ears, carried just profoundly um, religious and theological overtones. And I went away pondering about this thought uh, of restorative justice a great deal. So restorative justice is a process uh, of justice that takes punishment out of the equation as some as some necessity to restore balance to the to the universe and it replaces it by asking who was harmed what do they need whose obligation is it to meet those needs and it achieves the process of justice rather than in a court of law it achieves it through a conference or a meeting facilitated by expert professionals between not just the party, the person who caused the harm and the person who was harmed, but often the broader community from which they emerge. It's a fascinating way of looking at justice, and it is a little bit difficult to wrap your head around uh, if it's not the way that you instinctively think. And many of us in the Western world, culturally, have fairly deeply entrenched concepts of punitive justice. So that's that's my little history and then I was fascinated uh, some time ago chatting with Clinton to hear that restorative justice is actually used in our in at least some of our Adventist schools. Um so Clinton can you give us a little bit of a window into what that means when when we say restorative justice is used in a school setting?
2: Yeah, so um I would start by saying that I'm pretty much a newcomer to this. Um we have been doing restorative justice for possibly about four years at my school, Brisbane Venice College, and it's, it's, a, it's a journey. We're learning about it, we're learning um, how it works. Um, and um, I would very quickly say that um, we've possibly got a long way to go now. Um, we actually have a, a person who's not me, who's our restorative practice coordinator, and he would say exactly the same thing, that we're, we're very much learning. The first thing is that um, if you're going to look in a school, you often see them talking about behaviour management. And um, when we switch to a restorative practice framework, we actually changed our language to behaviour education. Um, and, it, and it's just a very subtle reframing, but it, it, it changes um, the narrative from one being about um, problems to be managed, and those problems are often children, to to children who need educating in the correct way to behave. Um, but Lachlan, it's exactly what you, you described. The the practical working of it is if there has been some um, incident at school, we recognise that it, it um, has um, either resulted from a, a breakdown in relationship or has caused um, damage to relationships. And so the the first and primary concern is to to work with the individual that has caused the harm, to find out why they're causing that harm, um, what it is in their their relational world that needs some support and some some unpacking, and then helping them to understand the way that their actions have impacted others and affected um, their relations with others, both um, their classmates and the teacher and maybe the wider community, and often involves them needing to, to take some steps to to um, to fix and amend the harm that they've caused. Um, so you know, a really simple example of how that might work is um, earlier this year, I had a had a student that you know became overwhelmed with a situation in class and and um, caused a bit of harm. And so that student actually received a lot of support, so they could understand both themselves and what they have done, but also um, ultimately came back and apologized to me and the class for for the harm that they'd done
0: right and this is the sort of scenario where perhaps when i was at school it would have been a bit more expected for such a student to get i don't know get a detention get get some sort of punishment this this behavior is inappropriate and you must suffer some consequence
2: yeah definitely um, the particular scenario was a. Uh, a verbal altercation in class that spilled into a, a slight physical altercation, and one student stormed out of class. And um, there was there was no purely innocent party. The two the two parties are actually good mates, but on this day they you know just got a bit excited, and um, things had spilled over. And yeah, so so in a in an older um, or more traditional framework, certainly a, a physical altercation would have resulted in in um, if not detention, possibly even suspension, but uh-huh. but those were, those were not, um, those are not parts of a restorative framework. That doesn't mean though that there is a, a never-ending. We're going to keep building the relationships and try to keep it going because it can get to a point where someone doesn't want to be part of the community or is being so damaging to the community that we we have to make the regretful decision to say, look. Your, the harm that you're causing yourself and other people is too great and we don't have the capacity to support you through this and for the good of our community, we need to move you on. But but exclusion is is not a punishment as such but a recognition that this, this relationship is not going to work out.
0: So I found it very interesting, just doing a little bit of reading uh, before we, we came to, to record this conversation. Fifteen years ago when I attended the public lecture, it was pointed out that in the ACT, when this was being trialed uh restorative justice was being trialed on a kind of random assignment um certain certain cases from from the the courts were being sent to restorative conference rather than to a traditional court of law it was pointed out that this trial was limited was restricted to certain kinds of offense and it was non-violent crimes and and a number of other things and i was fascinated to read just just this week, that um, in fact, now around the world in various jurisdictions, restorative processes are being used even for, you know, assault, sexual assault, violent crimes, even murder. Crimes where you would imagine that, it at least I imagine, just guessing, that it might be difficult to apply. So I'm fascinated to hear and read about just how widespread this idea is. And that, that opens a question to the rest of you guys. Um Clinton said he's not much of an expert. I'm certainly not much of an expert, but I'm a fascinated a follower of this topic. How familiar are you guys with the with the practice of restorative justice?
1: Uh, it's an interesting question, Locke. Our schools talked about restorative justice, particularly um, as we intervene to help students learn appropriate social behaviours. It's interesting, though, that there's, there's a fair bit of uh, unrest within the staff at the moment. There's been some rapid change at the school and not everyone's happy with it. And there's been no attempt to take our, our supposed all-in devotion and, and admiration of, of principal to restorative practice and actually apply it to the staff room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that makes it an interesting place to, to work at.
3: I want to talk about the dysfunction of my board of directors <laughs> <laughs> that is only partially a joke, because you would think that a church administration, a Christian administration, would would be fully on board with the concept of restorative justice. And yet, as I listen to Clinton and Kemp talking about, it, I realize I don't I don't think I've ever actually come across it in person before. Not not uh, the way they were describing. I've come across the sentiment that, uh, you know. We, we we love this person, uh, and uh, they have they have to be punished, and that's regrettable. But it hasn't. But they've still been punished. It hasn't been reflected in the the systems or the practice. Uh, in my experience to date, Luke, you you mentioned something there that's really interesting, which
0: was the w- regretfully punishing. Um, I actually think, as I learn a bit more about restorative justice, that regretful punishment is the halfway stepping stone. Uh you, you go from a truly punitive system where you relish the punishment, you get that you get that stick out and you just thrash the person and you enjoy that process. You you step from there to a to a process to a stage where you say, Oh, I feel the need to punish because somehow it's not just if I don't, but I'm actually not enjoying this anymore. And I think a lot of people can, uh, can recognize and can uh, can access that step. And restorative justice is very much just the next step past that, where you sort of say, hang on a minute, maybe there isn't the need to punish just for the sake of justice to happen. And, and so I think that that's a, a bit of a natural progression that does occur.
1: It's interesting, lot like, uh, your comment there on punishment. I suspect from my knowledge of at least school students and and from personal experience that that uh, getting a cane or uh, being at lunchtime detention or some punitive measure would often be regarded by many people as a preferable experience to being made to sit down and have a frank conversation about what you've done.
0: Well, I I think that you could well be right.
1: So I don't see that the restorative justice has no punitive component. I, I think it must be very unpleasant for the well. For I had a question
3: involved. about this actually because and this is maybe a question for you, Lachlan, or for Ken, or for Clinton. Um, is does restorative justice? Technically, by the definitions that you're aware of, involve a punitive or or, or punishment element of any sort.
2: Uh, so, can I chime in there? Yeah. Um, in the way we apply it, no, there is no punitive um, element to it. Uh, in fact, it's it's quite explicitly not punitive. But it's not easy. Um, it, it's hard. It's hard as a um, from a practitioner perspective, but it's also hard from the person that. That the relationship is being restored with, but I, I would disagree with Cameron that it's it's unpleasant. The the um, circle of practices, as it's called, that I've been involved in, or the restorative conversations, are actually um, often deeply moving. They're very healing processes, and so that process of healing can be be painful, but it's not unpleasant because. If you, if you only ever get to an unpleasant point, then it's not really restorative, that is just punitive. But the end goal of walking away going, okay, that's been hard work, but we now understand the other person better. We understand how, how they reacted in this way and why I reacted in this way and, and, and the harm and the misunderstandings as a result. And you're now walking away going, okay, we can, we can put down our, our um, weapons of war, so to speak, and start to move forward. Um, So I've always found it to be at times a hard experience, but never an unpleasant experience.
0: So this is a good point to throw in a statistic that I was absolutely intrigued by when I first encountered. And the, the actual number varies from different trial to different trial and different region and jurisdiction and country and age group. And there's many different factors in it, but restorative justice is becoming increasingly used in part because it is measurably better at reducing re-offence rates. So, um, you know, one possible argument against it would be in the abstract to say, oh, but if you take away punishment, then aren't you just making it easy for the person to walk away and commit the same offence? I I can't give you a detailed theoretical explanation of why the answer is no, but I can point you to a vast amount of empirical data that says, no, it doesn't, it doesn't let people go away and reoffend. And I think the key comes in Clinton's word of education. I think if you, if restorative justice has happened um, well, then the person who caused the harm has actually grown and been educated and learned and and I want to pick up on a phrase, Cam, that you used a month or so ago in one of our episodes where we talked about the law as teacher. And you shared the, the idea that justice is pretty intrinsic to us. We all, we all know what it feels like when, when our own toy gets broken when we're the kid, right? That, that feels unjust. The hardest thing for us to learn is that the other person who, who owns their toy is also a person, and that if I then go and break their toy, I have caused the harm and the pain. That that I know what it feels like, right? And I think that the restorative justice, when done properly, is exactly that learning process. It's the it's the guided and facilitated under recognition. And I guess here there is one other comment I need to make, which is that we're focusing, as we often do, on the uh, what would be called in in more traditional views of this on the perpetrator restorative justice actually deliberately as i understand it shifts a lot of attention onto the person who has been harmed it gives them a whole lot more control of the situation than is typically afforded by even conventional punitive systems of justice and in doing so it actually much more effectively rebuilds them and helps them heal and move past the the harm that has been caused. Now, I recognize at school, the harm that has been caused might might be somewhat trivial in the context of courts of law that deal with really serious things. Uh, but as I, as I said, I've been a little bit blown away. I read a fascinating account of a, um, a sexual assault case that went to restorative conference rather than punitive court. And the the a great deal was made of the way that it facilitated a certain level of healing in the per, in the survivor in the person who had been harmed
1: is, is it true ken that courts of law don't deal with trivial matters
4: <laughs> uh, i have dealt with many trivial matters i did once have a dispute that was at least ostensibly uh, about the Length to which the grass was cut on a local golf course. Um...
1: <laughs> Look, you know, it's interesting. There was a case when um, I remember I haven't seen the uh, actual write up of this, I think it was in a social science journal. But I was talking with a teacher at school who told me about the study. There was a Interesting case where there was a school that had an after-school care and parents would occasionally turn up late, which is a huge inconvenience if you're sitting at half past five or something the you're waiting to go home and you've got one child left and their parent's half an hour late. And so the school thought that what they would do to uh, solve this problem would be to institute a fine. Any any parent whose child who didn't pick up their child on time would be fined. And this resulted in <laughs> more parents being late mm. for their kids because mm. they no longer had to feel guilty about it because it's fine they were, they were paying the fine
0: yeah
1: it was only 20 dollars that's something. cheap so, you that's know, cheap child that's i'll just pay the 20 bucks yeah that, that's cheap so and the school can't complain because now what a relief they've put a price on it and i can pay that price yeah. and then it's then it's all okay so you know maybe punishments don't always have a...
3: I, I think there's a case to be made that fines aren't actually punishment there there is there is some models of doing fines it's one of
0: its sweden i think fines traffic fines are allocated as a they're they're assigned as a percentage of your tax return so there was some guy who parked his car in the
3: wrong spot in the city for half an hour and got fined $100,000 it's it's very smart um, it would that does make fines into a punishment Uh, Otherwise, they just become a punishment for poor people. But I'm sliding to my social justice agenda again, and that's not the topic of tonight's.
4: (laughs) I'm not sure that it's entirely irrelevant, Luke. Um, I've been rather silent uh, throughout the course of this discussion because I find myself both uh, heatedly agreeing and vehemently disagreeing with much of what's said, (laughs) Uh, uh, and often at the same time... Perhaps uh, perhaps
1: you need to hold... Perhaps, Ken, you need to hold a sort of restorative um, <laughs> process <laughs> within yourself. <laughs> uh, uh,
4: between my different personalities. Um,
0: uh, uh, I, um... So, I mean, Ken, one question that I have for you is, are you aware of within the Tasmanian context any uh, actual trials or any actual context in which restorative justice is being used in the standard mainstream sort of secular law uh, process Well,
4: again, it depends what you mean by restorative justice and whether you would draw a distinction between that and therapeutic jurisprudence, or um, uh, certainly there are uh, specialist lists that look at rehabilitating uh, particular types of offenders. There's uh, uh, a court-mandated drug diversion program for offenders whose offending is connected with uh, their drug use. Again, there are limitations on that. There are mental health diversion lists where people whose offendings related to mental health issues are provided with support and uh, the uh, punishment uh, can be deferred uh, or the penalty that would be imposed, the sentence that would be imposed can be deferred. That's slightly different things to restorative justice. There are alternative dispute resolution mechanisms that enable uh, uh, more flexible resolutions than a court of law can impose to be explored between the parties, uh, mediation and conciliation and the like, which can have a restorative uh, effect. Um, uh, but I don't think, I think it will be fair to say that within the Tasmanian context, there is not a uh, a focus uh, on restorative justice. Um, there are elements of it because there are uh, the ability for uh, victims of crimes to make victim impact statements, uh, but the uh, legal effect of those statements and the ability of those statements to affect the uh, outcome of the sentencing process um, are not clear. Uh, well, are uh, perhaps disputable is, is, is a way of putting it. But that's not to say that the consequences of offending behaviour are ignored uh, in the sentencing process. Indeed, uh, they're explicitly part of the sentencing process. And uh, consequences are one of the things that we're talking about when we're talking about restorative justice, because we're looking at the harm that's been done uh, to a victim uh, and looking for uh, ways of uh, providing restoration uh, of that harm. Although I think a restorative justice model more properly should be thinking about uh, not just the uh, recompense for harm, but which is also part of the Tasmanian legal system and most legal systems, but I think there's a much more important element uh, of restorative justice, and that is the uh, reconciliation of a relationship. Uh, and mm. that's something that I think, realistically, the law in Western society generally uh doesn't place a great deal of emphasis on so and i think from a christian perspective jesus in matthew 5 i think 24 uh says go and be reconciled now using that as the starting point for a discussion of restorative justice is a a really well important entry into the discussion And to look at it as a restoration of relationship, our world is a world of relationships, and one of the things that relationships involve is conflict. I mean, I think it was Jesus also who said, wasn't it, where two or three are gathered in my name, there'll be a dispute. Perhaps that wasn't his words, but (laughs) um, uh, uh, I think he recognised
1: that. But there's the the Jewish saying, Ken. The Jewish saying is that if you get two rabbis together, you end up with three opinions. <laughs> yeah, there's some
4: great, there's some great Jewish stories about about conflict and uh, the resolution. In any event, I, I think I've perhaps uh, hogged the last couple of minutes with that uh, exploration without having advanced the discussion much further.
0: <laughs> no, but it's a it's a useful perspective, and it's a it's a it's certainly very interesting. I would like to. In the interest of time, we could talk about this for a great length of time, but we do have to have mercy on those of us that edit. I would like to ponder, the, pose the question, um, if we, in, in our school systems, or even in our broader social justice systems, are comfortable with exploring restorative justice, what does that mean for our picture of divine justice? Uh, especially divine justice as revealed to us and taught to us by the events of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. And I think that that's something that that we need to ask, because I want to start this by saying that I do not believe that humans are capable of inventing a justice system that is better than God's. And so if we can invent a justice system that we can measure to be better than certain other justice systems that humans have used in the past, I think that for me personally, it's just a given that God's justice system is better yet uh, and is even more effective. And so it does cause me to ponder a little bit, what are the implications? So, I mean, Clinton, you use this system, um, you teach at an Adventist school, Has there been, is there ever any discussion about the way that this practice of doing discipline and justice and healing within the school community impacts the theology of understanding the atonement offered by Jesus?
2: When one is discussing with a student um, why their behavior hasn't contributed to a classroom, one rarely gets into the theoretical abstract of theories of atonement. Um, Maybe you can edit that bit out. Oh, no, that's Um, (laughs) staying.
1: No, that's classic. Well, how many? The thing is, Clinton. How many? How many students are prosecuted for heresy at your school?
2: <laughs> <laughs> the question is, how many teachers are prosecuted? I was guessing. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, let me let me um, try an, a different line of answer. Yeah, absolutely. The there is a a seeming conflict between what might be a a traditional expression or formulation of the gospel story that those of us in a a Western context are very familiar with, which is basically that sin is some legal um, definition of separation from God. Um, There is a punishment. That punishment is death. We, We start racing through some passages in Romans to justify this. And then we, we say that, you know, everyone has sinned and is deserving of this punishment. Um, but the good news is that um, Jesus took that punishment on himself. And therefore, we are able to, to be justified and we attach a legal, legal definition to that of, you know, our, our sin, our, our debt has been paid um, and move forward from that. And certainly, um, at face value, restorative practice um, is at odds with that. But our restorative practice coordinator at school very openly says that restorative practice is, is the best expression of, of the gospel he has encountered in the school situation because it's focused on, on restoring and, and uh, redeeming relationships. To, to go from a different perspective, and I, I think I can actually venture a, a perhaps theoretical, theological explanation for why restorative practice works. I think the the journey at school with restorative practice paralleled my own increasing concern um, and uncomfortableness with with notions of violence and expressions of violence and and perhaps overly simplifying the book of Revelation, but I actually see that it's a, a story between two systems. And the system of God is characterized by love and restoration and the system. of of antichrist is is characterized by violence and destruction and wanton abuse of anything that is good Um, and so it it's no surprise to me that a a justice system that is focused on on making things right and bringing things in rather than imposing violent solutions actually works because because you'd expect something that is of God being life affirming life bringing to to actually work and and I use the word violence quite broadly because um, you know at least in Australia we're no longer executing people for for crimes but too often and I say this very much as an indictment of myself both as a teacher and as a parent I find myself defaulting to to methods of managing um, behaviour that are actually rooted in violent practices. Um, you know, teachers have a whole arsenal of, of um, little strategies that are, that are actually just little power games, you know, um, you power dress, you, you sit in posi- sit particular positions in a classroom to establish your authority. Um, and these are either rooted in violence or, or rooted in implied violence. Even um, you know the times where regrettably you raise your voice with a student or, or your own child, there is a underlying violence to to raising your voice, and it's a massive challenge to realize that that in doing so th- this resort to violence is actually an expression of antichrist within us, and I've got a massively long way to go with this but but um, I recognize that my natural leaning towards wanting to use violence is actually a form of antichrist and that the more that i try to to use christ-based solutions that bring and re- bring life and redeem and restore um, the better a person i become and the better the relationships with other people mm, that's a good answer
1: i, I suspect Clinton, i've got even further to go than you have one of the things that's most frustrating in a classroom and i tried to explain this to my students was that when you are a teacher and you, and you, you want quiet uh, and you ask for it and you don't get it and then you yell and you do get it, just at the Pavlovian level of conditioning, it's like it's like students spend the first four years of high school just conditioning their teachers to walk into a room cross, not all students, some students. And uh, the last time I yelled at my class, I gave them, I explained this to them at the start of the lesson. And I said, it was, I was taking someone else's class and it was a famously rowdy class. And I said, you know what I think going to happen in this lesson. I'm going to explain this to you and I'm going to ask you nicely three times. And you're going to work well for about 15 minutes. And you're going to start being rowdy at about 20 minute mark. And I'll ask you quietly to stay in your seat or be in task or something. And then I'll yell and it will work. And it was like I was a fortune teller, <laughs> the whole lesson. But maybe in hindsight, I was just sort of giving them permission to, if they thought that that's what was expected, that um, they just felt empowered for the to let the lesson run that way. I, I don't know. It, it it is really, it is really difficult. Um, it's especially difficult in a classroom where you there's a huge amount of angst. I get I get quite anxious in the classroom. It's because. I'm quite happy. I'm really quite comfortable talking with a, a student who's been misbehaved one-on-one and trying to sort with them and resolve their problems. But when they're in a class and they're like either endangering endangering the safety of another student or what's way more common, the education of another student, their presence in the room is diminishing the product that everyone else is getting. I find it an a impossible situation to... I I resent, if the truth is told, being held simultaneously responsible for the educational outcomes of the whole class and the emotional outcome of the student who's causing trouble. I think I could do either of those, but I find it very hard to do both. Hmm.
4: I I would respond to um, uh, Clinton's um, insights um, with some counterpoint. I, I think... There's a difference between violence and the exercise of power, um, and I think that needs to be recognised. I also uh, think that uh, there are occasions when, in the best interests of others, uh, violence is necessary. It is immoral uh, to stand by with the power to do something about it uh, and watch somebody raped, uh, and to uh, protect the person may involve the exercise of violence um, or the use of violence. Um, and there is a difference between uh, uh, an exercise of power uh, and an abuse of power. Um, indeed, um, uh, God, uh, if we have to use Christ as our example, uh, is the most powerful being in the universe. Now I'm not suggesting that we have the ability to Um, uh, use the power that we have as humans, and we do have power as humans, uh, in the perfect way that God uses his power. Uh, But we ought be careful uh, not to uh, simply say that every uh, exercise of power is a bad uh, exercise of power, uh, be it in the classroom or anywhere else. Uh, And uh, it must be recognised that on occasions an exercise of power uh, will involve The imposition of an objective uh, behavioural requirement against the will of the person uh, who's uh, uh, offending against that objective requirement. Uh, And that that will require sometimes uh, more than simply education. Uh, It will require consequences, some of which are natural uh, and some of which are. Constructed uh, in order to do good uh, for uh, those who are potential victims or actual victims um, of wrongdoing, uh, and those who might be uh, in the future. So uh, it's uh, I'm i a uh, a firm believer uh, in the restoration of relationships. There are limits on that, and sometimes those limits uh, are. The result of the uh, unwillingness of, and I don't have any qualms about using the word perpetrator of the wrong, um, uh, because to uh, not recognize the person as a perpetrator of wrong uh, in many ways diminishes the harm to the victim. The unwillingness of the perpetrator uh, to accept uh, their wrongdoing uh, requires Structured consequences um, uh, for that behaviour, even if that just has a protective purpose. And we and and look, restoration is a wonderful focus, and it needs to be a central focus. Um, but there are all sorts of uh, situations where it's not going to, uh, simply not going to be
1: enough. It's it's interesting, Ken. I had a, a couple of thoughts while you were talking. One is that you said that it is obviously that there's appropriate times to exercise power. Because one of the the things... I mean, it's obviously true. It's also uh, transparently the case that there have been many times and many people's exercising power in a way that they thought fitted that category, which in hindsight we look back on and we say, ah, they were deluded. We look
4: at the stolen generations. We look at... you know, many, many examples you can you can give of, of that sort of thing. But we need to recognize that in the Garden of Eden, um, mm. the very clear instruction that God gave to human beings was to rule. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that uh, that should be... Uh, uh, well, you need to be a particular sort of person uh, to exercise the power well. Um the, the power to rule well and to govern. And most human yeah. beings, uh, myself included, uh, fail uh, dismally uh, at that. Um, but we ought recognise that that is part of our humanity.
1: The other thought I had, Ken, was um, at, the, at the fringe, maybe it's not so far towards the fringe as all of that. Maybe we're all closer to it than we'd like to think we are. But there is, of course, the case of someone who has a serious mental illness. And education has to have come in a different context, um, in that in that regard. And uh, I had an odd thought this week. Uh, Ken, you've said in the past that delusions of grandeur are, are one of the very common forms of men- serious mental illness. And uh, I had an odd thought this week uh, that what if what if Donald Trump's had like a medically like delusions of grandeur, he he's he's just imagined that he's the president of the United States. And the only reason we've not noticed he's suffering under a serious mental illness is because that he has been the president <laughs> of the United States.
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs> so so it has to be it has to be said that um, every every instance, everything that I have read about restorative practice and restorative justice implies. Considerable skill and training and expertise on the part of the facilitator, just as in a conventional court of law, we expect a a judge to have a considerable amount of training and expertise to be able to fulfil that function. Um, I think a restorative conference requires the the facilitation by someone well trained in that process and that is something that's a little bit a little bit difficult if we don't have loads of experience with it it is a bit difficult and it sounds very airy-fairy oh look we just get everyone to sit together until they all feel good um and i and i think that that's probably um slightly an unfair but very natural characterization I i wanted to draw as we come to a close i wanted to draw attention to just one other aspect that intrigues me so much here is a quote about restorative justice it highlights one of the very very central factors and it says at its best restorative justice produces consensus-based plans through face-to-face dialogue that meets the needs of everyone impacted beginning with the crime survivor now it's the face-to-face that jumps out at me in the context of thinking about the atonement because regardless of all of the um, variety of sort of models of atonement that christians have found useful throughout 2000 years of church history they revolve around the fact that at the most fundamental level god felt it valuable to come face to face they are all incarnational the entire point of jesus in his in his incarnation was that he came as a human and spoke as God to us but face to face in a way that had not happened you know you think of Moses in the old testament and he sees the back of God's grandeur on mount sinai and and God had not come face to face and in Christ as a human God does come in a face to face dialogue with us and there is something profoundly um, sort of parallel there with some of this restorative practice
1: look your, your comment on history um echoes back to a passing reference Clancy made in a previous episode about moral influence theory now i I don't know I didn't know anything about moral influence theory, but preparing for this, I did do some research on different models of the atonement, so um, most of our listeners perhaps many of our listeners will be uh, in the same position that I was in until quite recently. I I never really realized that I adhered to a particular model of atonement. I just thought that what I'd been told was what everyone had always thought, and it was obviously just the way it was. And so by model of atonement, we mean sort of what was the mechanism? How How did the crucifixion fit into God's mechanism for restoring human- humanity yeah. to himself. Yeah. so
0: Clinton's already referred to one uh, a very common picture amongst Protestant Christians that that Christ took our punishment for us and therefore we can live free of the eternal punishment.
1: Yeah. And and God had to punish someone. Right, it implies God that. Yes, it implies someone. that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter if he punishes the person who did it. Just someone, and then he can sort of breathe a sigh of relief and say, "Oh, that's done." Uh, I I did a bit of research. I actually came across a great website that just goes through a quick sort of summary of seven different models of atonement that Christians have adopted. Um, if it's of interest, I might go through them really quickly.
0: Yeah, definitely. That sounds great.
1: So the moral influence theory was a really early theory of the atonement. And the idea was that Christ came and died to bring about a change, positive change to humanity. So just by his example, just by being God on earth, he gives us an example to follow and he's there to influence for us for good. And that's, that's what the crucifixion means. Um, the, the ransom theory of atonement uh, is again, an early church model moving into the third century. This, this, theory essentially teaches that Jesus Christ died as a ransom sacrifice paid either to Satan or to God. Jesus' death acts as a sort of payment to satisfy a debt on the souls of the human race, and we inherit the debt from Adam's original sin. Mm. There's the Christus Victor, which Clancy has referred to also. Um, In the past, that's the idea that Christ had to come, and he had to die because uh, by dying and then being resurrected, he conquers death. Yeah, there's some really vivid medieval
0: blood. pictures of that where the three days, the just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, that, that phrase from the Bible, the vivid medieval ideas that Christ, while dead over that Easter weekend, descended into into the underworld and fought with death as some sort of embodied uh, characterization of death and, and defeated death.
1: So uh, the next one, in the 12th century, there was people who held to the satisfaction theory. Uh, proposed, uh, in this theory, it was proposed that Jesus Christ's death is understood as something that satisfies the justice of God. Sin is an injustice that must be balanced. There's an imbalance to the force, so <laughs> as to speak. And that some, some act of great good is required to balance and to satisfy the injustice, uh, to satisfy God's justice, mm.
2: we actually sing about that particular theory when when we have lines like "the wrath of God was satisfied" in some of our worship songs.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know people, uh, even in my own family, who refuse to sing that line, much as they enjoy that song.
1: Yeah, uh, the penal substitutionary theory uh, was uh, the one that we adhere to very strongly. Uh, the idea is that there's God's law has been transgressed and and that the law requires punishment, the punishment of sin is death, so someone has to die. and it's it's very much phrased in terms of legal uh, framework. There's a variation of this held by Methodists uh, which was that uh, Christ suffers the punishment of our sin and propitiates God's wrath. It's a bit like penal substitution. However, in the governmental theory, Jesus Christ doesn't take the exact punishment we deserve. He just takes a punishment, a symbolic punishment.
4: In in which case, he he wouldn't have had to have actually died. could have just...
1: Yeah, he could have stubbed his toe. (laughs) Which was punishment enough. Um, (laughs) The stubbing toe theory isn't in the list. That That was my contribution. Scapegoat theory moves away from the idea that jesus died in order to act on god so it's not saying that jesus had to die to sort of change god's mind or anything or as payment to the devil that's that's not what it's about it it suggests that jesus is not a sacrifice but a victim he's a he's a fellow victim along with us and that he jesus was killed by a violent crowd the violent crowd kills him believing he's guilty jesus is proven as innocent as the true son of god so let me, let me read the summary. Uh, Jesus is, uh, sorry, Christianity is a priestly religion which understands that it is God's overcoming of our violence by substituting himself for the victim of our, of our typical sacrifice that opens up our being able to enjoy the fullness of creation. So it's
3: nothing to do with God or the devil. It's all about us.
1: Yeah. Uh, the most informative part about the end of this was, was the summary. It says each theory presented here is dense and complex. I personally believe that we need to move beyond, I'm quoting from the website, some of these theories and progress into a more robust theory of the atonement. But thankfully, at the end of the day, we aren't saved by theories. We're saved by Jesus. How that happens may be fun to discuss. But we have to remember that it's who, it's the who, it's the person. That That almost manifests. sounds
3: like a, a warning or a disclaimer. Warning, maybe fun to discuss.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Cam, that's a really good summary, and I've heard of some of those before. Interestingly, as a as a strong C.S. Lewis fan, I note with interest that the, the model of atonement that is more or less allegorized in Narnia um, is not specifically the same model of atonement that I grew up being taught as an Adventist Christian in Australia. So yes, I have experienced the slight dissonance that comes from From trying to put together different pictures of this and i think it may be something like many of the other pictures of god that we have where the greatest truth lies in not finding the one true model but in gleaning the the elements of truth from many different models and living with that paradox so in summary i think that the um the fact that christians have found value in different models as their context and culture has changed suggests that we might need to be open to similar learning and um, change in our own pictures and models. I would like to challenge everyone to be on the lookout for this restorative justice, restorative practice. There are huge, huge and exciting benefits that it promises that it has to offer. And um, probably some things that we're going to have to change and some hardships that we're going to have to endure or rethink or reconstruct our thinking a bit uh, surrounding and um, i would like to encourage people to think about the way that this comparatively new but having said that in some indigenous cultures very very old way of doing justice uh, can be a very powerful way for us to learn something new of the infinite god
4: Um, But if you want some further resources about this, when we're talking uh, about restorative justice, uh, we're really talking about ways of restoring relationships uh, that have been damaged by conflict uh, in one way or another. And uh, I've spent my entire professional life uh, working with conflict. And there are two places that I would like to provide a a pointer to resources for One is a book, uh, if you're involved in conflict and want to think how to resolve that conflict in a Christian way. Um, One is a book by uh, an engineer and lawyer uh, named Ken Sandy, S-A-N-D-E, simply called The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. And uh, the second is uh, an organisation in Australia um, uh, that is called Peacewise, and uh, the a little byline for Peacewise, is Christian Solutions to Conflict. Um, and they have um, uh, wonderful resources available and uh, assistance available uh, for Christians uh, seeking to resolve conflict. Two, two places to go uh, if you're looking for the resources that, in my uh, life, I have find, found most helpful in providing a theoretical framework and practical application for resolving conflict.
0: Well, we look forward to you joining us next week and listening to the next episode of this podcast.